You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. You have to really search your soul and say, am I really on to this something here or am I, is this becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy? Because the, the, anyone who takes that step has reached the conclusion, I know better. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben looks at Cloudflare's decision to cut service to Kiwi Farms. I've got the first report from the U.S. Congressional Research Service on the metaverse. And later in the show, Ben's conversation with Robert Carolina. He's senior fellow with the Information Security Group at Royal Holloway University of London. They're discussing the legacy of Edward Snowden. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, we got some good stories to share this week. Why don't you start things off for us here? So the big one in the technology world is what happened over Labor Day weekend with Cloudflare and the site Kiwi Farms. Hmm. So Cloudflare, I think all of our listeners would be familiar with them. They're a web infrastructure and security services provider. They support the back end of websites. Mm -hmm. Uh, They prevent uh, your website from being the victim of a DDoS attack, uh, for example. Then there's the site Kiwi Farms, which is an outgrowth of 4chan and 8chan. It's basically a bunch of internet trolls. Uh, they go <laughs> after marginalized individuals, including people who are autistic, uh, people who are struggling with gender, sexuality things. Um, they've led harassment campaigns against uh, trans rights activists, uh, other individuals, and their harassment has been linked to a series of suicides. Hmm. Uh, so... They're really, really bad people, uh, to put it mildly. Yeah. And uh, what's, what, what seems to be their motivation? Are they, are they just out there to, to, to be mean for, for the sport of it? I kind of get the impression that that's like 90% of it. Hmm. I think they have a political agenda, which is we're against political correctness. We're, in, we're against some of these like modern social movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, they're just a bunch of angry people online who are— fine engaging in harassment campaigns. And they feel a certain degree of, of uh, anonymity and immunity, I suppose. Yeah, I'll also state, yes, they do. I mean, they they can stay anonymous. I think it's important to state that this to sites like Kiwi Farms can serve as a community for a lot of people who are otherwise marginalized and don't have interaction with other members of society, which is hmm. really dangerous. I mean, sometimes the only community people feel like they belong to is an online community. And what if your online community is a bunch of trolls uh, mm-hmm. who are organizing harassment and, and targeting of transgender people and, and autistic people, that mm. sort of thing. Wow. So 
There is an activist campaign. There's one prominent trans activist who was spearheading this to get Cloudflare to cut services to Kiwi Farms. And this weekend, Cloudflare announced that they would do that. Hmm. Uh, Their CEO issued a long statement where he really expressed great regret and sorrow about making this decision. Hmm. Basically saying, as the provider of back-end support for website services, we do not want to be involved at all in basically any type of content moderation. It's basically, we're free speech absolutists, and the absolute last thing we would ever want to do is cut off service to a site because of the content of their speech. Hmm. Uh, I think in this circumstances, he felt compelled to do it because there were instances of specific threats being leveled at individuals. Um, this one trans activ- activist who led the uh, campaign ended up having to go to, I- uh, to Ireland or Northern Ireland, and um, she uh, really felt a danger for her own life and had to report. Uh, so when you say she had to go there, you mean she she— she went there out of a, a fear for her own safety? Exactly. Wow. She's a, a U.S. citizen who went overseas because she was fearful for her own safety because of this harassment campaign. And when she was overseas, she had to call law enforcement to let them know about credible threats against her because people with Kiwi Farms were able to track her location hmm. somehow. So as a result of the fact that there was a specific charge of harassment, that there was some type of imminent threat, Cloudflare felt forced to make this decision. They've only done something like this a couple of times in the past. Uh, They cut services to the Unite the Right group in the wake of the 2017 Charlottesville uh, attack Hmm. protests. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just this very interesting scenario of... Big tech companies who have these very deeply held principles about not moderating content, fostering an atmosphere of free speech, but then they're up against these edge cases where people are making very specific threats and it's almost impossible for them morally, legally, et cetera, uh, to stay silent uh, to this, this type of harassment. And it just shows that You can wax poetically about not policing speech, about not moderating any sort of content, not being politically biased, but there are going to be instances like this because the internet is a big place and there are a lot of bad people out there who want to harass people. Right. Well, can we, let's, uh, help me unpack this a little bit so to clarify my own understanding. I mean, I would imagine that Cloudflare, for example, would not support a website that was posting you know, child sexual abuse material, right? And no, would they, they would they say that, well, that's illegal. Yes. So you can't do that. And that's always a special carve out, yeah. uh, even under our First Amendment laws. So I, I think they would refuse to support something like uh-huh. that. That's true. Uh, but in all types of closer cases, um, you know, I think in one instance, they withdrew their services from the Nazi Daily Stormer website. Hmm. Um, and there was another 8, 8chan troll haven in 2019 that mass shooters were using. Um, and they were uh, using that site to distribute racist manifestos that motivated mass shootings, and they cut services to that. But beyond that, I mean, there are a lot of other really, really objectionable things that they're fine supporting because that's their business. That's their business model. Help me understand here. I mean, this whole notion of a, of a free speech absolutist, right? I mean, even our constitution is not absolute when it comes to free speech. It's not. Yeah. I mean, there are certain things that fall outside free speech protection. Um, 
false advertising, uh, things that lead to imminent, imminent lawless action. So hmm. speech that not only is threatening, but also would cause somebody to imminently uh, cause physical harm to somebody else. Uh, those are just two examples. Certain types of obscenity, profanity, um, all fall outside First Amendment protection. Mm-hmm. But First Amendment protection is pretty robust. So you see a lot of people online say things like, well, the First Amendment doesn't protect hate speech. It absolutely does protect hate speech. Hmm. Uh, it protects all different types of speech that many of us would find completely objectionable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when people say, who know what they're talking about, say that they're free speech absolutists, I think they're saying that they're willing to go out on a limb and defend all different types of quote-unquote bad speech Mm -hmm. in order to protect the value of a free and open society. Uh, I just think eventually they're going to run into the same issue that Cloudflare runs into, Mm -hmm. where you will end up, it's almost just a, a law of nature, you will end up being confronted with something so objectionable that's causing such kinetic harm that you're going to have no choice but to go against your own values. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's exactly what Cloudflare did. Um, they say that it's a dangerous decision. The, the decision they, they made to cut, <clears throat> to cut services is dangerous for them, and it's one that they're not comfortable with. Um, and they didn't even want to attribute it to the activist campaign because they're so ashamed of it. Hmm. They just said they're taking the, this action uh, because there is an imminent threat to somebody's life or physical safety. Hmm. Um, but we are going to reach that point uh, because there are a lot of, I mean, Kiwi Farms is, is not alone in the data sphere among people <laughs> who are willing to cause harm to others, who are willing to dox and stalk and swat and do all t- different types of terrible things to people. Mm-hmm. So I just think it kind of shows the limit, even of these companies that say, uh, privacy is a value and free speech is a value. There are always going to be cases where you're going to have to go against your values. I, I've rarely seen companies, and there are a few of them, but it's just a real rarity that when you're faced with a circumstance like this, you're able to actually uh, practice the very values that you preach to the fullest extent possible. Now, what does this mean for Kiwi Farms? Are, are they... Can they shop around and find someone else to provide this service for them, or is this it for them? Yeah, I mean, they sure can. Uh, All we know from them, they posted a statement on Telegram saying that this decision was done without any discussion. All they got was a suspension notice. Mm -hmm. They're denying that there was a threat to to life or or, uh, health and safety. Yeah, they can provide another provider for back-end services. Again, the website is going to work. They're just going to be vulnerable to uh, denial-of-service attacks. So. For all intents and purposes, they've kind of made themselves a target for people who want to uh, institute cyber attacks. Uh, So they're probably going to be screwed in that respect. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I mean, if if somebody wants to create a Cloudflare alternative that serves the 8chan community and Kiwi Farms, the market isn't going to stop them from doing so. It just might take a while to develop. Mm -hmm. Uh, And oftentimes these alternatives just end up being kind of poor imitations of the original. I mean, you think of something like Truth Social. Like, that sounds good in theory uh, as an alternative to Twitter. It's something that uh, former President Trump created so that he could practice free speech uh, on his platform. But they've run into a whole bunch of problems. One of them is people don't want to be on a website 
or on a social media platform that doesn't regulate speech because then you just get a bunch of trolls and harassers and right. even neo-Nazis. Right. It just doesn't work. It just it doesn't just work. It just doesn't work. No, exactly. you, you cannot, I mean, you cannot have a forum without any kind of moderation. It just, it just doesn't, I mean, it's a great idea <laughs> or, or uh, maybe great's not the right word for it. It's a seductive idea, yes. right? <laughs> but it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And yeah. I think more companies are going to be faced with situations like this uh, where they're kind of, their back is against the wall and they're forced to admit that we can't practice what we preach all of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Apple's done it. Meta's done it. Mm-hmm. All these companies that pride themselves on uh, fostering a, a community of free speech, whether it's a pressure campaign or not, or whether it's uh, protecting life and safety, it's going to happen. And so I just think it's a wake-up call to any company that thinks it's going to be the foremost champion of free speech and a company that can stay in the good graces of the rest of the corporate community. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it as you say, it's just it's kind of impossible. Yeah. What about the legal side of things? I mean, does does cloud is there any peril for Cloudflare uh, if someone like Kiwi Farms, as you say, you know their their harassment leads to suicides? Uh, is Cloudflare in anybody's, you know, t- uh, crosshairs because of that? They're largely protected because of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. I see. Um, I mean, they are a platform, uh, so they have legal immunity because they aren't participating uh, in this. They're just facilitating this type of mm-hmm. speech um, by providing back-end services. They're not actually committing the speech themselves. So they were at very a very low risk of legal liability mm-hmm. because of Section 230. Um, I wouldn't say there's zero risk, but I would say it's a low risk. I think it's more reputational harm uh, and not wanting to be responsible for someone's actual death or suicide. I mean, I think that adds a whole new level of fear uh, to some of these companies. Does getting involved with this in this way, I mean, does... does um does cutting off Kiwi Farms make them more liable to some to some legal peril because now they've made an editorial decision? And could someone argue that by making an editorial decision, they're no longer simply a, a platform? No. I mean, it's the same way that, uh, at least as the law currently exists, social media platforms can uh, regulate their their own platforms and prevent all different types of speech. They're private organizations. Mm. Um, they can choose with whom to do business with, mm-hmm. uh, you could call them hypocritical for saying, oh, well, they stopped services to Kiwi Farms. So what about this other site um, where there was this type of hate speech directed at these individuals? That's an interesting theoretical argument, but because they're protected by 230 and they're not acting as a publisher, they're acting as uh, a content platform, they're still pretty well protected by Section 230. I see. All right. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm chuckling because of how uh, universal it is that that these edge cases are are what you know sets the pace, right? I yeah. Mean, I mean, maybe we should call this Yellen's law or Bittner's law, <laughs> where any company that asserts its free speech principles will eventually run into a situation 
where a really bad person or bad group of individuals makes them abandon their principle. It Mm -hmm. is going to happen. I think there are certain things that are certain in life, death, taxes, and bad people on the internet. (laughs) That's right. You're not going to stop any of those things from happening. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we will have a link to uh, the story about that in the show notes. Uh, My story this week uh, is actually a report that came out uh, from the Congressional Research Service. Uh, They just uh, released their first report covering the metaverse, and it's called The Metaverse Concepts and Issues for Congress. Uh, Before we dig in here, Ben, can you give us a little background on the Congressional Research Service and exactly where they fit in? Sure. Uh, So they're housed under the Library of Congress, and they write policy papers explaining issues theoretically to members of Congress, um, but more so to staff members and to the general public. So Mm. if you have a question on basically any policy issue, there's a good chance that Congressional Research Service has written a paper on it. So I know when I first started teaching classes, they were an invaluable resource. If I wanted to know about the legal history of this type of surveillance or that type of surveillance, one of the first places I always check is the Congressional Research Service. They're great writers. Um, I know people who who work for them. They have uh, analysts who who write on pretty much every topic under the sun. Uh, Mm -hmm. So they're they're a very reliable resource. Mm -hmm. And they they try to be nonpartisan in the work they do? Absolutely. Uh, So they are nonpartisan. Um, They write papers based on the facts and based on their own research. Uh, So they are not affiliated with any political party. As far as I'm concerned, I've never seen one a Congressional Research Service paper that's espoused any type of ideology. I mean, they're pretty much straight down the middle. Hmm. Uh, and that's why there's one of the reasons why they're so trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll also say that they write about conflicts and concepts that aren't normally covered in mainstream media sources. So hmm. if you wanted to know about how the Federal Register works, that's something you would turn to uh, the Congressional Research Service for. I see. Uh, as opposed to something like a hot-button political issue like abortion. They're far less likely to write on that than just things that only the nerds in government know about. Right, right. So f- filling a, a valuable purpose here, filling in some of those content gaps. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So this report digs into the metaverse, which, of course, I I think it's fair to say there are lots of folks out there who think this is going to be the next big thing. Uh, Some folks are saying that, you know, the the company formerly known known as Facebook, who has gone so far as to name the company Meta after the metaverse, is really betting the farm on this. Right. I mean, the metaverse is the new thing. I've seen uh, the little cartoon version of Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> right. It's right. not that great, to be honest. <laughs> I'll just throw that out there. It kind of looks like uh, yeah. early Second Life technology, yeah. but well, it's got it'll it'll come along. It'll come along. Yeah, they're uh, working on it. This report uh, is is very interesting. I mean, it goes into exactly what the metaverse is. Um, some of the technologies that support the metaverse. They talk about. Uh, Things like augmented reality, mixed reality, virtual reality, and then even so far as what they refer to as a brain-computer interface, which uh, I guess is when you know not having to put a pair of goggles on to uh, to see the things in the metaverse 
actually wire into your brain itself and, uh, Ooh, and close your eyes yeah. and just be there. <laughs> As someone who's kind of scared of virtual reality, I mean, I've put on those little headsets uh-huh. and had monsters chasing me, and uh-huh. it, it you know kind of creates a pit in my stomach. I'm not going to be an, an early adopter of, of the metaverse. I'll, yeah. I'll wait until everybody else has had their experience with it. <laughs> come on. Come on, Ben. All the cool kids are doing it. <laughs> I know. Don't peer pressure me. <laughs> yes, right. That's right. Everybody else is there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so they go into some of the, the things that uh, Congress would, would need to consider, some of the things they think will, will come up perhaps. Uh, and it's a lot of stuff that we talk about here, content moderation, data privacy, uh, market power and competition, the digital divide. Uh, these are all important issues as we head into this uh, new possibility here, yes? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a couple of really interesting ones. So content moderation, first and foremost, just as there are offensive people, as we said in our last segment on the internet, there are going to be offensive, bad people in the metaverse who are going to try and do very bad things. Well, remember we saw this thing, one of the early things, I think when when Facebook first released one of their beta versions, uh, there were women who were reporting that uh, folks were coming up to them in the metaverse and and um, physically assaulting them. Right. Know, it was... It was harassment. Yeah, sexual harassment within the metaverse. Who could have predicted, Ben? Who could have predicted it? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) I mean, we should have a new law for this as well. Right. right. Uh, Users are going to come in contact with virtual beings who do awful things to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems like the analysts, at least that they talked to for this report, say that any effective moderation in the metaverse is going to be virtually impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just going to require the type of real-time enforcement that is impossible. It just can't exist. Yeah. They talked to the founder of Second Life who said that they never developed identif- uh, identity systems that would enable strong governance. Hmm. Um, so perhaps eventually uh, they would be able to adopt uh, content moderation practices, but at least in the early days of the metaverse, there would certainly be a lot of uh, potential for abuse. Mm -hmm. Uh, Data privacy is uh, another one. Um, People submitting personal information, which is, uh, as they say in this report, the seminal asset in the digital economy, uh, that's going to be a problem with the metaverse uh, because a lot of people are going to be giving valuable data uh, to a largely unregulated unregulated market, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, virtual market. Uh, another one that really interests me is the digital divide. Hmm. Uh, if metaverse becomes something that's widely adopted uh, and it's where people are making contacts, uh, making real-life connections, uh, making arrangements for job interviews, if it starts being used uh, in private schools and then public schools, um, then we could have a situation where the metaverse is something like broadband, where some people have access to it and some people don't, and that becomes a real uh, problem of of equity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's really not a policy solution to it. Uh, I think we're a, a long way from that being the case. I think we look at the metaverse now the way we looked at Facebook, when it first came out in 2004, 2005, like, what is this? This, this thing is yeah. never going to get a billion users. 
Um, well, even the internet, you know, when, when that was new and it was just the, it was that first wave of, of, uh, you know, nerds like you and me who were, I, you probably weren't around. No, right? I, was, I, was, I was pretty young. I was, <laughs> I was, I was there. You were there. You were there at the <laughs> Believe founding. Believe me, yeah. it was the first, the first wave of, of nerds like me and my college roommates who were on the internet and, and how, uh, and, but, but going through that process of trying to establish norms. Right. No. You're and trying to govern space that almost by definition is ungovernable. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are no jurisdictional boundaries. There isn't like a preset value in terms of rules and regulations that are just going going to exist because it's been willed into existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is kind of the wild, wild west. Uh and I don't think policy, I mean, we know that policymakers and, and lawyers and judges are always behind uh, the times when it comes to technology. Right. I think they're not even close to answering some of these policy questions. I think this CRS report is really probably the first time that even staff members for members of Congress have thought about the policy implications of the metaverse. Hmm. So I'll say that I really hope they read this. Uh, it's well-written, it's compelling, uh, and I think these are issues that eventually... Congress and state legislatures are going to have to work through. Is, is it by its nature and perhaps even necessarily a reactive process? Yeah. I mean, we're going to, it's going to be reactive because we're going to get some of these horror stories like you talked about, a few people facing abuse or sexual harassment right. or there being arbitrary content moderation policies that causes a political controversy. Mm. So it all, it is all going to end up being reactive, and it's just so early in the existence of the metaverse that <laughs> we haven't even gotten to the reactive part yet. Right. I mean, when the only articles on uh, problems in the metaverse are on sites that, you know, people who don't follow this stuff would never end up on in a million years. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, we're just a long way away from those types of conversations. I hate to be unkind, but I'm just imagining, you know, the, the members of Congress, you know, sitting there uh, with, with the goggles on, uh, you know, the octogenarian members of Congress with their goggles on trying to make heads or tails of this What is world. going on? And, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure some of them will take to it and adapt to it and love it and, and be right on top of it. But I guess this is another one of those examples where... Maybe uh, it's not great that we're led by a bunch of 80 and 90-year-olds. Right, yeah. right. And but But also that the velocity of change in this technical world... It might be a mismatch with how the foundational uh, framework of how some of our systems are built. Absolutely. We're not built for uh, adapt, quick adaptive changes. That's yeah. not how the policy world works. Certainly not how Congress works. Right. Um, it's usually multiple years in the making and a lot of fits and starts before anything happens. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, as you say, it's an interesting report and and a good read. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. If that's something that you're interested in, do check it out. Uh, We would love to hear from you. If there's something that you would like for us to cover, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI... 
The best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust Plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. It is always a pleasure to have Robert Carolina join us. He's been on the show a couple times. Uh, he is a senior fellow with the Information Security Group at Royal Holloway University in London. Uh, and you t- you had the honors this time of speaking with uh, Robert Carolina, and your conversation focused on uh, Edward Snowden. Here's Ben and Robert Carolina. I think the the challenge is an ethical approach to disclosure involves balancing. Um, a series of related problems. Uh, the, the the first test, I suppose, the first thing for anyone who wants to disclose or feels they should be disclosing is whether or not they've spotted evidence of wrongdoing. In other words, are is the person really convinced that what they've spotted is wrong with a capital W? Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of times we see things we don't like, or we think it might be wrong, or there's something, the smell test, it just doesn't quite pass. But is that really enough? I mean, if you're going to go down this path of of disclosure to uh, to a journalist. Because before we take a, a next step, let's remember that for people who work in, particularly in high security situations, or even just under a civil law non-disclosure agreement, you know, sort of like, uh, I don't want to call it a low security situation, but it's the, the stakes are lower, certainly. When you move outside of the official whistleblowing channel, the official policy, and you say, I'm going to disclose to a journalist, you know, you're taking, it's an enormous step. Right. You're, you're taking on to yourself this view that, you know, Forget what the official policy is, forget what the official channels are, forget what the law says, forget what my contract says or whatever it is. I know better than somebody else what need what the public needs to know, and now I'm going to take that giant step. So it's it's a big step. And I think before taking it, the a threshold question is have I actually spotted something that is so terribly wrong that I'm even prepared to contemplate that? Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I keep, I keep plowing down this road, but I mean, there's, there's one important thing, Ben, that of course you and I have to remind everybody, and that is what we're talking about right now, going outside of official channels. For a lot of people, that's not just sort of taking a calculated risk that they might get sued in a civil court. For a lot of people, that step is committing a crime. Yes, it's uh, committing a crime, either getting yourself locked up in this country or in the case of the person we're about to discuss, uh, living in a foreign country uh, for almost a decade as a result of one's actions. So let's let's bring that full circle because people can probably anticipate where this is going. We now I, I, have pro- probably from the uh, probably from the headline on. The- <laughs> exactly, we're not we're not super subtle here. Uh, <laughs> but just like this were a law school exam, I would like you to apply that legal test that you developed 
to the situation with Edward Snowden in 2013. How does the balancing test look in in your view? Well, okay, I'll I'll, I'll refrain from, from making the conclusion until I lay out the case. We begin with who is or who was Edward Snowden years ago when the disclosures took place. I mean, who he is now, that's, I'm, I'm not going to look at that. But who was he? All right. He was a system administrator. And he had root access to a whole lot of systems that held an enormous amount of classified information about, apparently, about what the NSA does and how they do it and everything else. Um, I haven't seen anything, I haven't heard anything that suggests that he had a lot of know-how or a lot of training in how intelligence products are used. Right. You know, who uses them, who consumes them, and how. I haven't really heard a lot of anything that suggests that he had a whole lot of training in the law that governs intelligence projects. And I haven't heard or seen any evidence that suggests he was significantly trained or had a good viewpoint of how these programs or projects fit with U.S. defense interests or multilateral defense interests. And that's pretty important because you and I both know, and I think hopefully our listeners have picked up on this, Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, especially when it comes to national security, is extremely complicated. Uh, and a lot of factors go into whether something is quote-unquote unconstitutional. And I think a, a point you made in your presentation is he was not, just not in a position to know, at least to I, the best of our knowledge. Well, I don't see any evidence that he was in a position to know, and I just don't see him having the chops to, in this case, even spot with clarity the existence of wrongdoing. Right. Now, didn't pass the smell test? He didn't like it. He thought he felt wrong about it. So maybe holding him to a standard of, you know, is he, does it have to be illegal in order to be immoral? Well, not necessarily. But if we shift the argument from legality to morality, I also haven't really heard a lot of evidence um, in listening to interviews with him, for example, uh, as to how he, what informed his moral compass of understanding not just that something was wrong, but trying to gauge how wrong it was. Right. He felt it was very, very wrong. So, all right, but let's move on to the next side of this thing, which is how would he assess public interest in the disclosure? How would he, was he in a position to figure out the, let's call it the legitimate public need to know? That might be a different, a better way to put it. Because public interest, oh yeah, I'm interested in a lot of things. But genuine, legitimate need for the public to know things that are going on, things that he felt were bad. That's one thing you got to balance. And what's on the other side of this little teeter-totter? What kind of harm might be caused if I disclose it? Now, in this case, you know, he's he's obviously a very smart individual, very clever individual. And again, I don't see anything in his constitution, in his makeup, in his training, um, in, his, uh, in his interviews or anything else that leads me to believe that he's got sort of a deep insight into what is the legitimate 
public need to know certain types of things. And equally, I don't see anything in his training or background that suggests he would be able to calculate what kind of damage could be done with these disclosures. Right, right. I think the worst aspect of all of it comes up in something that he says um, in the famous documentary that they filmed at the time of the disclosure, Citizen Four. Interesting film. It's really interesting to watch. They're in his hotel room in Hong Kong, I think it is, and he's got the journalists in the room with them, and they've got the film, they got the they're videoing him, they're doing all this kind of stuff. It's it's a really, you know, it's a really tense moment. And the journalists, it's like for the first time they begin to realize just how much data they're being given. Right, right. You know, it's like this is this is a mountain of stuff. It's like it's it's worse than you know a, you know a kid in a candy factory. I mean, you know, it's like I think it probably began to dawn on them that oh my God in heaven, um, this is like way more than we could have ever hoped for. And one of the journalists asks the question. He says, "Well, how much of this can we publish?" And here's the great quote. And I want to. I went and I actually looked at the published shooting script you know, where they took the the lines because I didn't want to misquote him. And the quote that I pulled from this was, Snowden says, I'll leave, you know, what to publish on this and what not to publish to you guys. I trust you to be responsible on this. Okay, so what's Snowden's solution? Does he drizzle out breadcrumbs like Mark felt? No. He says, here's the whole ball of wax. Here's the big ball of string. Here's the entire thing. I'm going to chuck it out the door. I'm going to put it in your lap. And I'm just going to say, hey, it's your problem. You figure it out. We talk a lot in security about things like uh, disclosure, responsible disclosure in terms of like finding vulnerabilities and all that kind of stuff. I think that if someone wants to take on the mantle or wants to try to claim the moral high ground for being what I would call a good or a just Uh whistleblower. I think at the very least, they need to be able to satisfy these criteria that they can accurately identify something that is wrongdoing. They understand just how wrong it is and why that they are able to assess the legitimate public interest in finding out what the wrongdoing is. And they're able to balance that against the harm that is being done and then whatever they disclose has to fit within that balancing structure. I think that's ultimately what makes a whistleblower who can at least, you know, sleep well at night. So I always have to be the annoying lawyer and turn into the devil's advocate here. And I promise I will do this briefly because you just made a very compelling case, but I I think this is just a, a point of contention here. After Snowden disclosed this information, two years later, Congress passed the USA Freedom Act, which was a pretty wide-reaching reform proposal of our surveillance state. Um, They also made some minor uh, revisions to the FISA Amendments Act. And more broadly, we've now had a nine-year debate on the value and the extent to which uh, we want to have such a pervasive national security surveillance state. So given all of that, that's something of value that he provided us. How does that affect your analysis, if at all? 
Well, first, let me violently agree with everything you just say. <laughs> um, I agree that the disclosures prompted an important debate. And frankly, that debate was long overdue. Mm-hmm. Um, many of us who work in the field of cybersecurity had suspected for a very long time that things basically worked this way. So it didn't surprise me. And there were a lot of people who weren't surprised. But I guess what did surprise me was how surprised the public policymakers were and how surprised a lot of other people were. So I agree with that side of this, Ben. However, even though the disclosures prompted a long overdue debate on these types of issues, I'm not persuaded that that prompting that debate would only happen after disclosing everything that was disclosed. I think there probably could have been a lot less that might have gotten people to move on this. I don't know. I might be wrong. I'll I'll freely concede that. But I don't think that the good that has come from this is necessarily necessarily outweighs the potential harms that could have been created. And I don't think, I, I, I just don't think it makes for what I would think of as responsibility in the mind of the, in the mind of the whistleblower. And, you know, to be, to be brutally honest, and I was, I was this honest with the students I was talking to as well. Uh, piece of advice, number one, don't become a whistleblower. Don't do it. That's just a basic, simple piece of advice. Don't do it. Right or wrong, lauded as a hero or thrown in jail, you know, even even if you win the sort of whistleblower lottery and everyone applauds you, there's a very real chance that your career is over and that your life is over. Mm -hmm. Because there will be a a large number of people who are going to like lift you up on their shoulders and they're going to applaud you and they're going to say, oh, what a great person you are. And then you turn around with your CV, your resume, and you say, oh, you have any jobs going? Oh, gosh, look at the time. Um, You know, it's... I think it's it's a very, very potentially self-destructive act. So if someone's going to cross that threshold, obviously one of the series of reforms that have come through, I understand, although you're you're the expert on this, I'm not, is that particularly within government offices, there are a lot of, let's say, official channels for directing whistleblowing concerns. Absolutely, more so than there used to be. And Snowden knew about those, and he said, but I didn't think they were effective. It's like, well, that's just kind of a way of saying you, you didn't get the result you wanted. Um, that's not the same thing as they weren't effective. I, you know, I, right or wrong, it's still hard to tell. But for anyone sort of like navigating that point of saying, you know, I'm prepared to just, you know, rip up this, be, suffer in, in, in a civil sense, in a non-government uh, operations sense, I'm prepared to be sued by my employer. I'm prepared to be fired. I'm prepared to, uh, you know, become a, a pariah in my industry uh, or whatever it is. You know, if, if you're prepared to take that kind of step, you have to really search your soul and say, am I really onto this something here or am I, is this becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy? Because the, the, anyone who takes that step has reached the conclusion, I know better. I know better. I know better than my boss. I know better than the person who runs the company. I know better than the person who runs the agency. I know better than the inspector general. I know better than all these people on the line ahead of me who are supposed to be experts at this sort of thing. But I know better. 
you really need to be careful before you go down this path because sometimes blowing the whistle itself is a harmful thing. Right, right. And you really need to search your soul before you go down this path. But ultimately, Ben, this is the problem of talking about subjects like this. I don't think there's a simple answer to it. I want, you know, whenever you look at hard ethics questions like this, I don't think there is a simple answer to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that certainly rings true. And I think we might have uh, some of our listeners uh, who would agree with you and, and some who would think Snowden and, and those who came before him were making a morally courageous decision. And I, I think that's something we'll have to leave up to to our listeners. Uh, but I want to thank you for a really a great interview uh, and for your insight. And uh, glad you were able to join us. Robert, Carolina, thank you. Thank you. conversation, Ben. Uh, what, what are some of the take-homes for you? I like that he's developed a framework of judging releases of privileged or classified information. That mm-hmm. it's not arbitrary and you can separate it from one's own politics. Hmm. Um, you can actually look at it analytically and think about the nature of the information being revealed, uh, the qualifications of the person who is uh, <clears throat> revealing that information, whether they're qualified to understand it and qualified to reveal it mm-hmm. to whom they are revealing that information. And I think you can make qualitative normative judgments about the next Edward Snowden. If you have this framework, mm-hmm. if you realize that somebody's doing it responsibly, if they've gone through proper channels and haven't gotten a sufficient response, then you can have a different normative judgment than somebody who just throws the paper on the ground and says, I've had enough of this. I'm going to give this to a gossip journalist and we'll see what happens. Right. So I appreciate Robert having that, trying to put that framework together. I thought it was a a very well done framework. Yeah. It's fascinating to me as, as we get a little distance with that whole uh, situation with Edward Snowden that, you know, there was a period of time when it seemed as though how you felt about the Snowden revelations was almost a litmus test for, your thoughts on privacy and government surveillance and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I remember, you know, a lot of folks who I know, people I respect, who said it's not so much what Edward Snowden did as the way he did it, which I think is interesting because I'm not sure if he'd done what he did in a different way, it would have been possible to have the outcome he was looking for. 100%. Does that makes sense? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you do go through proper channels and you have a conversation with your superiors and it's never released in the Guardian newspaper and, right. you know, splashed across social media and they have segments on John Oliver's show, it's never going to get into the cultural zeitgeist. So it's not always as easy as saying, oh, just bring this up to your superior and we'll deal with it internally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think what Robert has done here is at least come up with a framework of judging these situations beyond, do I like the person who's uh, revealing classified information or do I not? Right. Um, I, I just think that is a valuable exercise. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Robert Carolina for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and zero trust. 
Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero-trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>